0: Having no rehearsal, I think we did fairly well. (laughs) Thank you, Gertie. Well, it's good to be home. We had a great holiday, a whirlwind holiday, uh, a week and a half ago now. And uh, Leanne and the boys had an extended holiday. They went to Alberta and visited uh, her folks there. And so now... um, my mother-in-law is here with me this morning, but we're without Leanne or the boys because uh, Declan woke up with the flu this morning. The, uh, yeah, he was throwing up and all sorts of other fun things, so we decided that it was better off to leave him at home today rather than risk spreading it to others. So uh, welcome home from holidays. <laughs> Isn't that how it always goes? Well, it's still good to be home, and uh, we'd rather be sick at home than while on the holidays. So We'd rather have it this way. It's good to be back here uh, with you to share from God's Word. We're going to continue in our sermon series uh, where we're continuing our study in 1 Peter, living hope for a dying world. And today we are going to be looking at the passage that was read for us earlier in part three, God's provision for love. Would you bow with me and let's pray as we enter God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of love that you are a God who has shown us the great extent of your love through your actions, that you didn't stay at a distance and say, I love you, and then do nothing. But Lord, you showed us your love by sending your Son into this world to not only rule over this world, Lord, but you sent your Son to this world as a sacrifice. You sent him, Lord, as someone who had come to die in our place for our sins, and you showed us the great extent of your love by going to such great lengths to save us. And so we thank you, Lord, for that tremendous love that you have demonstrated to us, not only in the past, but that you continue to demonstrate to us in the present. And Lord, that is no more real than this gathering here this morning. We feel your love here in this place, and we thank you for it. And we ask, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to continue to fill this, your church and your people, with your love, the kind that comes from above, the kind that has no... Uh, selfish motives, no self-seeking attitudes, Lord, but that is truly the divine love, the kind that seeks nothing in return, the kind that is sacrificial as you have been towards us. And so we pray, Lord, for that kind of love to fill this church. We pray, Lord, by your Holy Spirit to speak this word into our lives. It's an old message, Lord, and, and yet it's one that we need to hear again and again. And so we pray, Father, that you would open our hearts again to receive it as from you. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The legendary coach Vince Lombardi coached his Green Bay Packers to the very first two Super Bowl championships in 1966 and 1967. In fact, he is so famous, Coach Lombardi, is that the Super Bowl trophy itself is named after him, the Lombardi Trophy. Now, Coach Lombardi was once asked what it took to make a winning team and in the book, Ayakoko reveals Lombardi's answer. He says, There are a lot of coaches with good ball clubs who know the fundamentals and have plenty of discipline, but still don't win the game. Then you come to the third ingredient. If you're going to play together as a team, you've got to care for one another. You've got to love each other. Each player has to be thinking about the guy next to him and saying to himself, If I don't block my man, Paul is going to get his legs broken. I have to do my job well in order that he can do his. And Lombardi also said that night, The difference between mediocrity and greatness is the feeling that these guys have towards each other. Here's a guy from football, a sporting realm, who pointed to the importance of having love and this deep affection and concern for each other on a team. So if we take that same principle to other aspects of life, let me ask you here as a church body, how do people identify that you are a Christian? How are you identified? How would someone, if they just met you, how long would it take for them to figure out that you're a Christian? And what would be the identifying trademark or characteristic of your life that they would figure out that you're a Christian, that you follow Christ? What do you think it would be? Our love. Our love. Absolutely. Who said that? I'm, I missed it. Right there. Perfect. You know, why is it our love that should, would and should be the defining characteristic of what identifies us as a Christian? Why is love so important? Well, if you want to get down to the simple answer, think about 1 Corinthians chapter 13. What does Paul say? Without love... We are, come on, fill in the blank, someone got this? Okay, nothing, that's right. Without love, we're nothing. So we could do everything else great, we could, we could be um, all sorts of uh, um, skillful and great programs and all sorts of other great things, but without love, we are nothing. And so when we're talking about being identified as Christians, not only within this church, but within the community, within our private lives... It's not the Jesus fish on our bumper sticker that identifies us, right? It's not how great our our church programs are. It's not even your church attendance that identifies you as a Christian. It's how we love each other. And so how we react to one another in a loving manner is the conclusive evidence of whether or not we are truly followers of Christ. It's not just showing up to church on Sunday morning that defines us as a Christian. It's how we behave towards each other. You know, if having love for one's teammates is an important factor to winning a football game, how much more vitally important is it to being a victorious church? If the difference between mediocrity and greatness on a football team is the love and concern between the teammates, how much more is the difference between mediocrity and greatness in the church defined by love? Now, long before Coach Lombardi, our head coach, the Lord Jesus Christ, he told us this, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Love, such a simple word, four letters, and yet love sums up everything that we do and everything that we are. Genuine, sacrificial, selfless love has always been what has distinguished Christ and his followers from every other religion and every other system in the world. Love for God and love for others is the foundation of all that we do. For if it is not, then all that we are doing is completely meaningless. It is in vain. Paul wrote, as I referenced in 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, stop right there, how cool would that be to be able to speak in the tongue of angels. What language do angels speak in heaven? Even if you could speak in that language that the angels speak in around the throne room of God, if you could speak in that, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, stop right there. How amazing wouldn't that be to be able to fathom all mysteries? Everyone would be knocking on your door. Hey, can you explain this to me? Can you explain that to me? You would be the master of every single uh, discipline on earth if you could fathom all mysteries. But even if you had all of that, what does Paul say? If I have not love, I am nothing. Now, the world might say you're really something if you could fathom all mysteries, but not according to God. According to God, he would say, without love, you are nothing. And finally, if I give all I possess to the poor, whoa, another massive statement. Who of us would dare to give all of our possessions to the poor so that we have nothing, nothing in reserve, no rainy day fund, no nothing. You've given it all to the poor. And surrender my body to the flames. Who of us is willing to be burnt at the stake for the name of Jesus Christ? That's a pretty big statement to be making. But even if you did all of those things, but have not love, I gain nothing, Paul writes. You see, the Clarny Mennonite Church, this church will not flourish or die based upon how great our programs are, although it's nice to have great programs. It's it's not going to flourish or die based upon how uplifting the music is, how good the preaching is, or how nice the building looks. This church will either flourish or die depending on whether or not there is genuine love here. That is what makes all of the difference. If people come into a building and they feel loved, if there's people who genuinely care about them and their welfare, there's appreciation being shown, that is what will make a church flourish. And so it is that God has designed it this way. Where there is no love, nothing will happen. But where there is love, oh, God can do incredible things. And so now we turn in our passage to 1 Peter. I invite you to turn there with me, 1 Peter chapter 1, if you haven't already. And I want to point out again our key verse for this study this morning in verse 22. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 22. Would you read along with me? Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. Now the word love appears twice in this passage. However, in the original Greek, two different words are used and it makes an important distinction. The first time Peter uses the word love, it is from the Greek word phileo. Now phileo, or you would probably recognize it better, Philadelphia. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That's right. So phileo is referring to the type of love that is the affection, that is a natural sort of affection between brothers or family, friends, a a sort of uh, camaraderie. This is the type of love that phileo is referring to. This warm feeling of affection. However, the first time he says phileo, he doesn't repeat the use of that word. The second time he says the word love, it is the word agape. Now, you're probably familiar with the term agape already. It is a completely selfless concern for the welfare of others, which is epitomized by God's active love for his son, his people, and even his enemies. Because remember, it was while we were yet sinners in the position of being enemies of God that God loved us so much that he gave his one and only son so that no one need die, but that everyone could receive everlasting life. That is agape. God showed love to us while we were enemies of his. He loved us so much that he sacrificed his son. He gave. That is love in its highest form. That is agape. So here we see that Peter already knows that since these believers had obeyed the truth, these early Christians had that natural phileo love towards each other. They sincerely had warm feelings of affection for one another. And Peter's acknowledging that's a good start. But then he challenges them to go further, to embrace the pure, fervent agape for one another. Peter urges them not to stop short at having nice, friendly feelings towards each other, but to then go further and to put those feelings into action by sacrificial service, sacrificial kindness towards each other. And that is what Peter means when he writes, love one another deeply from the heart. You know, we use this word love in all sorts of different applications, but here Peter is getting to the heart of the matter. This is a deep love. This isn't just saying, I love hockey, or I love popcorn. You know, it's not even saying that, you know, the the casual way that we'll say for myself, you know, I love my wife, I love my children. This is getting down to the heart of the matter. This is a sacrificial, deep love. And sadly, our nation, our pop culture, our community, knows very little of agape. Agape. As we look at the world around us, agape is sorely lacking. Turn on the six o'clock news. You know, since I started this series, I used the title, Living Hope for a Dying World, and I cited a few examples. Well, in the three weeks since I started this series, have you seen what's been happening in the world? Have you seen the pain and the devastation? I turned on the news the other night, and all it showed was children who were being crippled and traumatized by war. All over the world, whether it's in Ukraine, whether it's in the Gaza Strip, whether it's in Africa, there is just pain, and there's heartache, and there's killing, and there's dying, and this is just happening over and over and over. And this is just in the past two, three weeks since I started this series. We're living in a dying world. Where is the living hope? The living hope is the agape love of God, but it is in short supply. And our popular culture doesn't understand it so it can't give it to us because it doesn't have it you can't give something that you don't possess and our culture doesn't know agape because it doesn't know god you cannot have agape love without god and so our popular culture gives us the best version of love that it knows and it's mostly linked with the greek word eros the passionate erotic sort of a love but usually even the sincere form of that has been brought down to the lowest common denominator it's given us a twisted and distorted definition of love. Most movies and TV shows repeatedly teach us at the most basic crass level that love equals sex. That's what our culture is feeding us. But my friends, that's not love. That's not even close to what love is. That is lust. And lust is a worship of one's own pleasure and gratification. It is at its core selfish and self-seeking. It is not seeking to serve the object of its affection, but instead have the object of their affection serve them and their desires. And even when it appears to be genuine, it eventually betrays itself for what it is. In the Reader's Digest, Joe Wagner shared the following story. He writes, I was attending a junior stock show when a grand champion lamb owned by a little girl was being auctioned off. As the bids reached $5 per pound, the little girl standing beside the lamb in the arena began to cry. At $10, the tears were streaming down her face and she clasped her arms tightly around the little lamb's neck. The higher the bids rose, the more she cried. Finally, a local businessman brought the lamb—pardon me bought the lamb for more than $1,000. But then in an act of noble charity, he announced he was donating the little lamb back to the girl. And the crowd applauded and cheered. Months later, I was judging some statewide essays when I came across one from a girl who told about the time her grand champion lamb had been auctioned. She wrote, The prices began to get so high during the bidding that I started to cry from happiness. She continued with, The man who bought the lamb for so much more than I could have ever dreamed I would get returned the lamb to me. And when I got home... Daddy barbecued the lamb. It was delicious. You see, outward appearances can tell us one thing, but the reality can be something else entirely different. What appeared to be a genuine love for the lamb was nothing more than selfish greed. She was seeing dollar signs, and so she wept for joy. And in the same way, as we look at our culture and we see the different portrayals of love, some of it appears on surface level to be genuine. And yet when you get to the heart of the matter, it is selfish. It is self-seeking. It is not pure in its motives of seeking only the good of the other. And true love, agape, is always selfless love. True love does not even consider its own selfish desires, but only considers the good of the object of their love even to the point of sacrificing themselves for the other. And that is why Paul describes love within the marriage context like this. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What a high standard of love. Not self-seeking, not self-serving, completely other-serving. Only the good of the other is is what is to be considered. During the 17th century, Oliver Cromwell, Lord Protector of England, sentenced a soldier to be shot for his crimes for act of treason. And the execution was to take place at the ringing of the evening curfew bell. However, as the soldier stood blindfolded there before the firing squad, awaiting his fate, that evening the bell, for some reason, did not sound. The soldier's fiance had climbed into the belfry, clung to the great clapper of the bell, and as they had pulled the ropes deep beneath, she had blunted that clapper from striking the inside of the bell and thereby prevented it from ringing out. There was not a sound. And so the soldier's fiancé was called before Lord Cromwell to account for her actions. And so there he questioned her, Why have you done this? And without saying a word, with tears streaming down her face, she simply rolled back her sleeves, revealing her hands and her arms. Those same hands and arms which had absorbed the blows between the clapper and the bell were bruised and bleeding, skin hanging off in great strips. And Cromwell's heart was so touched that he said, Your lover shall live because of your sacrifice. The bell shall not ring tonight. And in exactly the same way, when we stand before the executioner to receive the punishment that our sin deserves, Jesus holds up his hands. He shows us the nail scars, and the execution is stayed. The price has already been paid. The bell shall not ring tonight. And that is love. That is agape. Agape. That is what we are called to put into practice towards one another. And that is what Christ has done for us. What kind of love is this that we are following after? It is something else altogether, something that this world cannot even recognize. And yet, when it is practiced, the world stands back in awe. What kind of love is this that would sacrifice themselves for the other? And Jesus said, No greater love has any man than that he lay down his life for his friends. This is what we are referring to this morning when we use the word love. And so this morning, I want to draw to your attention the next point. Is this love possible? Is practicing this kind of love in reality something that we can actually do? Or is it so high that it is unattainable? Because I know you might hear these stories and you might hear of the wonderful love of Christ... And you could be wondering, is it even possible? Can we truly love one another deeply from the heart? I want to say to you emphatically, the answer is yes. God never gives his children a command without providing them the supernatural ability to obey that command. Just as last time we looked at how God has provided us the ability to be holy as he is holy. He now provides us with the necessary ability to love others just as he loves others. And how do we do this? Well, Peter gives us some more practical advice. Let's look at verse 23. Verse 23, Peter writes, For you have been born again, echoes of a familiar verse. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. Now here, Peter is referring to the regenerating, renewing work of the Holy Spirit, which happens through God's Word. And practically speaking, when we hear the gospel, and we believe it, we receive that, we confess our sins, we put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, in that moment of salvation, God forgives us. And he sends us the Holy Spirit to do that healing, cleansing, regenerating work that only he can. And in that moment, we are transformed into new spiritual beings. Not ones earmarked for death, but now ones earmarked for life everlasting. In that moment, we are born again. We are born for a different life. Something other something on a whole new plane of existence. Now we are supernaturally on a higher level because the Holy Spirit of God has come to do that work that we could never have possibly achieved on our own. And so in that moment, the Spirit of God has awakened our mind, our soul, and spirit to God's love, and it then enables us to love God in return, and from there, love one another, even those who are difficult to love, even those who are our enemies. And when we think about it, what greater testimony of our God than the love that we show to one another, especially enemies. You know, it's possible to love like God because God is now living in us. And God is love. And if God is living within us, then his love lives within us. And so we too can love on that higher plane, the plane that all the world would say is impossible You know, we look at the war happening between Israel and Hamas, the Palestinians and the Jews, the age-old struggle, and we ask the question, will it ever end? Well, it hasn't for thousands of years. But what's the only thing that could end that kind of conflict? It is only love. Love that is the kind that could love even an enemy. And until that kind of love is accepted, there will be no peace. But this is the kind of love that God has enabled us to show towards others. What, what kind of transformation can this make in the world around us? Because this world desperately needs people who are willing to live out this kind of love. And this is where Peter takes us to the application. True love means tangible action. True love means tangible action. So though love, true love is possible... I don't want you for a second to be misguided into believing that it is easy. Our selfish flesh still tells us to not put the interests of others ahead of our own. Therefore, this divine command requires supernatural strength that can only come from God. Trying to love like God without God is an exercise in futility. And that is why we must ask him every single day for more love. One of my personal prayer requests that is just habitual in my prayers almost every single day is to ask God for more love. I ask Him daily to give me more love for Him because that is our greatest command is to love the Lord God with all of our heart, soul, um, strength, and mind. That is the greatest command and I fall short in that and I need more love so that I can love Him more fully. I ask Him daily to give me more love for Him. My next request is that he would give me more love for my wife. Because he has commanded me to love my wife sacrificially as Jesus loved the church. I so often fall short in that as well. I need more love. And so I ask him for it. I ask him for more love for my family. I ask him for more love for his church. Because this is the church that he died for. And so often, my love for his church falls short, and I need more. And so I ask him for it. And finally, I ask him for more love for the lost and hurting in this community. Because so often, I am callous. So often, I don't even hardly seem to care that people are dying without Christ, heading into eternity. And I know that's not right, and so I ask God to give me more love for the lost. And what I've discovered when I ask God for more love is that he delights in answering this prayer. He is so excited that his children would even seek more love, that he just pours it out in return. He is not stingy with love. No, he is a God who loves loving his children and giving them more. There are scriptures that refer to how great is the love that the Father has lavished upon us. He has lavished it. He has poured it out. He is not stingy. He is not holding anything back. When we ask for it, He will flood us with His love. But we've got to ask for it. We've got to to want to go deeper than just having affectionate feelings towards each other. We need to then put it into action. Because what good is love if it does nothing? In fact, I would argue that those who claim to love... But don't do anything to back that up, are just giving lip service to love. I would argue that what some claim to be love is not love until it is put into action. Even saying that phrase, I love you, if not accompanied by actions that are loving, soon can become just meaningless words. Let me give you an example of that. If I say to Leanne, I love you, hun. Now, could you move so that I could see the TV? How does that fly? Right? Not, not so great. Now, we can get so casual and flippant with the words, I love you, in some instances, that it's not actually following through. You know, it's not going to get you very far. But now if I say, I love you, Leanne, after I've given her flowers and taken her out for a nice dinner, and I've listened to her, then those words really mean something, because they've been demonstrated, they've been followed up on by my actions. You see, love requires that we give of ourselves. And what good would God's love for the world have been if he had not given us his son, so that our sins could be forgiven? You see, God so loved the world that he gave Giving is always the trademark of true love. For love to be true, it must be put into tangible actions, and that requires intentionality. It requires discipline and hard work. And that is where Peter turns next for our final point for this morning. True love requires a change of diet. Now, would you believe that what you eat could uh, possibly... Be a positive or negative effect on your relationships. Did you know that? What you eat could positively or negatively affect your relationships. I know what some of you are thinking right now, but that's not what I'm getting at. I'm not talking about eating that double Big Mac before going for a car ride. Okay, that's not exactly what I'm referring to, although that's probably a bad idea. In the beginning of chapter 2, Peter begins using the metaphor of spiritual food. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, he writes, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Here Peter tells us that if we're going to love our Christian brothers and sisters deeply, then each of us must eat properly so that we might grow into our salvation. To assist us with our spiritual diet, Peter gives us a menu complete with good options that stimulate our spiritual growth, as well as a list of junk food items that will stunt our growth that we need to get rid of. So first, let's focus on the good food. The good food is the word of God. It is, he says, like milk for our souls. Milk refers to those elementary truths of the gospel, salvation, grace, forgiveness, baptism, and resurrection. These things draw us together as a Christian community. They are the common elements of the faith, the foundation. With them we stand on common ground. But we are not to be satisfied only with milk. The Hebrew writer says that we are to move on to solid food, or meat, which refers to the deeper truths of God and living that out in that new life in Christ. And so the word of God is both spiritual milk and meat to be part of our daily diet. Without it, we cannot thrive as Christians. We cannot go on into growing up into our salvation. We'll always stay at that infantile level. Only just staying at the basic level. But no, we are to grow, and so that must be part of our daily diet. Eat it and grow. Eat it and love more deeply. Eat it and strengthen the church. And so now, however, as good as the Lord tastes, there is always some leftover junk food that we need to get rid of as well. And so the junk food, it stunts our growth and it quenches our love. And Peter lists five items on the junk food menu that the Christians must get rid of. We are to look at them as leftovers that have been salmonellas all over them. Don't even think about trying to cut off the mold. Just chuck it all together. And here are the things that he lists as junk food. First, malice. What is malice? Have you ever had malice towards someone It's a pretty dark word when you think about it. Malice is really the opposite of love. While love seeks the good for another, malice seeks only the bad. Love wants the other to flourish and succeed. Malice wants the other to fail and be devastated. Malice desires the other to be hurt or at least to wish within their hearts that something bad would happen to them. It is wishing a person got struck, for, struck by lightning for them having somehow offended you in some way. It is hoping that someone cheats on a person for that person having cheated on you. It is bitter. It is vengeful. And if not thrown out, malice is that spiritual leftover that will sicken your Christian soul to the core. And if allowed to fester in the church, malice will cause untold pain and devastation within the body. So he says, throw it out. Get rid of it. The second one is deceit. We all know what deceit is. Like malice, deceit is love's opposite. Deceit is the desire to harm others through trickery, through falsehood. It lacks honesty and it lacks the truth. A deceitful person hides behind lies, half-truths, and innuendo. Unfortunately, that person is unable to give and receive true love because love requires an atmosphere of openness, of honesty, and of trust. And where there is deceit, there can be no trust. Get rid of it, Peter says. Thirdly, he says, get rid of hypocrisy. This most dastardly vice is what Jesus condemned so strongly in the Pharisees. The hypocrite covers up his own evil heart and intentions with an outward show of goodness and righteousness. And if you have tendencies in this area, Peter says, get rid of the leftovers. Get rid of hypocrisy. Be genuine. Fourthly, he says, envy. If there is Any such thing as spiritual salmonella, this is it. It's envy. This is truly spoiled meat. You see, when envy is allowed to build within the Christian soul, it turns on the believer. They are therefore unable to then rejoice with those who rejoice and to grieve with those who grieve because they're envious. And so the envious person negatively affects the health of those around them. If someone else is rejoicing, they're envying their joy. And so they begrudge it. And if someone else is suffering, they'll say, good. They're, they're now on my level. And that's what envy does. And so the next time something good happens to one of your brothers or sisters, I want you to ask yourself, can I genuinely rejoice with them? Can I be happy for them? That is a good litmus test for whether or not you are harboring any envy within you. Get rid of envy, Peter says. And finally, slander. This leftover junk food of slander is truly anti-Christ in spirit. It is from Satan himself. It is from the pit of hell. The father of lies is the one who has invented slander. Slander's purpose is to simply destroy another's reputation by any means possible, using lies or gossip or whatever other devices it can. You see, as Christians, we are called to build each other up. But slander only seeks to tear down. Slander, along with its close cousin gossip, should never be tolerated in the body of Christ. Simply refuse to participate in it. Walk away from it. And if someone insists on constantly serving you gossip, call them on it. Where do you get that information from? How do you know it's true? And even if it is, here's the real litmus test on gossip. Is it beneficial to anyone that this is being shared? Even if it's true... If it's not beneficial in any way that it's being shared, it is still gossip because it is still destructive. So refuse to participate in it. Get rid of it, Peter says. Throw it away. Nothing kills the atmosphere for true love faster than slander and gossip. So rid yourself of such things, Peter commands. And so now, let me say to you, we cannot afford to allow these leftovers to tempt us to tantalize us any longer. They are not only detrimental to us personally, they not only erode the collective soul of this church body, but they also, when left unchecked, destroy our witness within the greater community. Remember what Jesus said, the world will know you are my disciples if you love one another. But the great thing is that when we do love each other deeply, when we do love even those who, find, who we find more difficult to love, We are reflecting the heart of our Heavenly Father and we are becoming more like our Lord Jesus. Let me share with you a story adapted by Ian Pitt Watson from A Primer for Preachers. He writes, There is a natural, logical kind of loving that loves lovely things and lovely people. That is natural. That is logical. But there is another kind of loving that doesn't look for value in what it loves, but that creates value in what it loves. Like Rosemary's Ragdoll. When Rosemary, my youngest child, was three years old, she was given a little rag doll. She instantly loved that rag doll more than anything else, and it rarely left her arms. Soon the rag doll became more and more rag and less and less doll. It also became more and more filthy. If you tried to clean the rag doll, it became more ragged still. The sensible thing to do was to trash the rag doll. But that was unthinkable for anyone who loved my child. For if you love Rosemary, you love the ragdoll. It was part of the package. God says, If anyone claims that they love me, yet hates his brother or his sister, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. If we love God, we have to love his ragdoll. If we love God then we have to love his people. That is part of the package. God says, love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your brother as yourself. These are the first and greatest commandments, and this is the final challenge and invitation to you. You see, our Heavenly Father has given us this as our greatest command, to love one another deeply from the heart. This is selfless This is difficult, and yet with his supernatural ability, it is possible. And because it's possible, it means we can put it into action starting right here today. And it's going to require, let me warn you, it will require all of your effort. It will require every single one of the days that God has given you remaining in your life. It will require every hour of your day. But with this kind of love in your life... God can use every last hour that you have remaining to make an impact in this world, to make a mark in your family, in this church, and in this community. You can love people in a deeper way than you, than you ever thought possible. And however much you are currently loving people in your life right now, let me tell you, you can love them more deeply than you currently are. Do you believe that? Or have you capped it out? Have you hit the ceiling? Or do you believe that God can give you more? That greater love is still ahead in your life if you ask God for it. I believe that this is possible. I believe that we can go beyond phileo within this congregation and truly go to agape. And so this morning as we close, I want to challenge you. Start finding tangible ways to show not just phileo, but agape to each other within this congregation. Make it your mission this week to show genuine selfless love towards someone in some tangible way. It doesn't have to be profound, it can be very simple. And yet when you do that, you'll be amazed at what will come about as a result. So let that be our challenge, our homework assignment for this week, to love one another deeply from the heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is the old story. This is what it's all about. Not one of us heard anything very new this morning, and yet, Lord... Your love is always music to our ears. It is life to our souls. And I never grow tired of hearing about it. I never get tired of speaking of it. Because, oh Lord, your love has made all the difference. Your love has flooded my life in such a way that I have been changed and that my life has been changed. But, Lord, I know that this isn't all there is, there is more. There is a never-ending supply of love with you, and there is deeper love yet ahead. And so, Father, I pray, would you flood this church with your love? Would you flood each one of us here this morning, Lord, with a deeper sense of what agape means? For each one of our situations in life, Lord, for the marriages that are represented here, I pray, Father, that you would flood them with a deeper agape, that they would serve one another deeply not seeking what they can get in return but instead only the good of the other and i pray lord that the marriages here would be strengthened as a result oh father i pray that that for every other relationship father to child mother to child lord i pray that those relationships would be strengthened i pray lord that friend to friend and even friend to enemy lord i pray that these relationships could be healed by the wonderful agape love that you have made possible to each one of us who believes in you and so father i pray that we would go out in that love today and that it would change our attitudes towards the people we meet that we would look at them lord in a different manner and that we would get rid of all those old things that we used to live our lives by and that instead love would be the song in our hearts every moment of every day thank you father for making this possible by your great power that works within us to you be the glory forever and ever we pray